Hey, this is Pastor Spencer with Racine Bible Church. You're listening to a sermon from a Sunday morning. Uh, with the remainder of our time this morning, I want to bring us to one passage in the book of Mark. And as we come to God's word this morning, let's pray and ask him to illuminate his word to our understanding. <clears throat> our Lord, as we open the Bible this morning, we pray that you would speak to us by your spirit through your word. Uh, Father, we know that our own thoughts and desires and our affections are fallen. Uh, on our own, Lord, we would go astray. And so we pray that by your spirit, you'd use your word to instruct us, to encourage us, and to change us. It's in Jesus' name we pray. Amen. Amen. So I invite you to open your Bibles to Mark chapter 10. Mark chapter 10. We'll be in verses 32 to 45. And here's the main point. The main point of this passage is that Jesus had all authority over all people, yet his life and his mission were characterized by serving others and sacrificing himself for their sake. I'll say that again. Jesus had all authority over all people, yet his life and his mission were characterized by serving others and sacrificing himself for their sake. And we're going to see this in three parts. The king predicts his suffering. The disciples seek for glory, and the king serves his subjects. Let's start here in Mark chapter 10, verse 32. And they were on the road going up to Jerusalem, and Jesus was walking ahead of them. And they were amazed, and those who followed were afraid. And taking the twelve again, he began to tell them what was to happen to him, saying, See, we're going up to Jerusalem, and the Son of Man will be delivered over to the chief priests and the scribes, and they'll condemn him to death and deliver him over to the Gentiles. And they'll mock him and spit on him and flog him and kill him. And after three days, he will rise. Jesus is on a journey, his very last journey, to Jerusalem. And he's traveling with a whole lot of other Jewish pilgrims from Galilee, they're all coming south to Jerusalem for the Feast of Passover and Unleavened Bread. As you would have seen on that map, they would have crossed over the Jordan River and stayed on the east side uh, as they traveled south, so they weren't walking through Samaria. And they would have crossed back over the Jordan River and then walked uphill the whole way to the city of Jerusalem. That's why it says up to Jerusalem. It was up in elevation. And Mark tells us that the people who were with him were amazed and were afraid. These pilgrims are in the company of this great teacher from Galilee who had uh, made some waves, and they may have sensed that something big was about to happen in Jerusalem. And in this, in this situation, Jesus pulls the 12 disciples aside and tells them again he was going to be killed in Jerusalem. This is the third time in three chapters that he tells them this. And the disciples don't get it. They don't get it, Right? This is too difficult for them to understand. I, we have the benefit of 2,000 years of hindsight, right? So we look back at the disciples and like, what, what were they thinking? But, and, and we should, we should look at it that way. But there is good reason why they're having trouble grasping this. Let's focus for a moment there on, in verse 33 on this phrase, the son of man. Jesus calls himself son of man nearly 80 times in the gospels. It's his favorite title for himself. And that's especially true in the book of Mark. That's what he uses, son of man, son of man. Why does Jesus use that title so much? 
And we might think that, well, the, the idea of son of man, that emphasizes that he's human. You know, like this title, son of God, mean, emphasizes that he's a deity. He's God. Son of man, son of God. Jesus is man. Jesus is God. But that isn't actually the point of the title, son of man. Of course, Jesus wouldn't use that title if he wasn't human, but he, he wasn't walking around trying to convince people who he was human. They all thought that already. Okay? What's, what's the deal with the title Son of Man? And to understand this term, we have to look back at the Old Testament in Daniel chapter 7. You could turn back there if you want, or you could uh, just listen. But in Daniel chapter 7, we get a vision. Daniel gets a vision, and he sees God on the throne. And God is referred to as the Ancient of Days. And he sees the, the Ancient of Days on the throne. And then in verse 13, this is what happens. I saw in the night visions, and behold, with the clouds of heaven, there came one like a son of man. And he came to the Ancient of Days and was presented before him. And to him, to the Son of Man was given dominion and glory and a kingdom that all peoples, nations, and languages should serve him. His dominion is an everlasting dominion which shall not pass away and his kingdom one that shall not be destroyed. So when Jesus uses the term son of man to describe himself, this is what he's referencing, right? What, what words did you hear there? Things like glory, kingdom, dominion, everlasting, right? Everyone's gonna serve him. When we think of son of man, this is what needs to come to mind. The king of all kings, the authority over all authorities, the one who will reign over all, be master of all, and everyone's going to bow down and serve. Now go back to Mark 10.33. See, we're going up to Jerusalem, and the son of man, the king, the master, the authority over all, the one the entire world is going to serve, they'll deliver him over. To death. Do you see why the disciples don't get it? Do you see why it doesn't compute? You, you might have heard that there's a, there's a football game on tonight. Um, it's kind of a big deal for some people anyway. And uh, you've got the two best teams in the NFL, 49ers and the Chiefs playing, right? But just imagine, instead of the 49ers playing the Chiefs, the Chiefs are playing the Union Grove Bronco eighth grade peewee football team, right? In the Super Bowl, right? Place your bets. Who's going to win the game? Yeah, it's, it's like, oh, what, this, is a, this is a walkover. This is it's not, not even worth talking about, right? Th this is how the disciples are thinking of the Son of Man versus the puny authorities on earth. Right? They, they know what the Bible says. Jesus has been calling himself the son of man and showing that he's the son of man, executing authority over demons, over disease, over death, over the Pharisees. He's not going to lose to anyone. Right? He, you know, no one's going to touch him. He's the son of man. Anytime now the disciples are in the clouds are going to part, they're going to see the Ancient of Days and he's going to hand over all the, all the kingdoms of the world, all the authority and everything, all the glory and all the honor are going to hand him to this Son of Man, Jesus. And he's saying, I'm going to go die. What? It doesn't, it doesn't compute. They, they're convinced he's the Messiah, the deliverer of Israel. 
They think that right now they're on their way to Jerusalem. He could be crowned as king. So the disciples are understanding his identity, but they haven't yet understood his mission. His mission. And it's in this context, then, that two of his disciples come and talk to him. So let's look at verse 35. And James and John, the sons of Zebedee, came up to him and said to him, Teacher, we want you to do for us whatever we ask of you. And he said to them, What do you want me to do for you? And they said to him, Grant us to sit, one at your right hand and one at your left, in your glory. Jesus said to them, You do not know what you're asking. Are you able to drink the cup that I drink or be baptized with the baptism with which I am baptized? And they said to him, We are able. And Jesus said to them, The cup that I drink, you will drink. And with the baptism with which I'm baptized, you will be baptized. But to sit at my right hand or at my left is not mine to grant, but it's for those for whom it's been prepared. And when the ten heard it, they began to be indignant at James and John. All three times in the book of Mark, when Jesus predicts his death, it's followed by the disciples showing that they just don't get it, right? Chapter 8, Jesus says, I'm going to die. And Peter's like, no, 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 you're, you're never going to die, right? Doesn't get it. Chapter 9, Jesus says, I'm going to die. And the disciples immediately start arguing about which of them is the greatest. They just, they just don't get it. And here in chapter 10, Jesus says, I'm going to die. And immediately, John and James are like, hey, can, can I have the best place? Can I have the best place, right? All they see is this Daniel 7 glory that's coming, and they want a part of it. They think Jesus is going to overthrow the yoke of Rome. He's going to become king, and they're vying for spots of prestige and influence. And so they ask for the two positions of highest honor in Christ's kingdom. And this is a request made in faith. I mean, they, they believe what Jesus has said about himself, about who he is, but it's wrongheaded. They're motivated by selfish ambition and pride. And Jesus says, you don't know what you're asking for. Because for Jesus, there would be great suffering that would have to come before he could receive his glory. That's the order. That's the order, suffering and then glory. And James and John weren't asking for the greatest suffering. They wanted the glory, and Jesus says, that's not how my kingdom works. That's not how it works. And he uses that image of a cup and baptism to drink God's cup in the Old Testament Refer to uh, taking on God's wrath, experiencing God's wrath. Uh, baptism, that image of going down in the water, it's used a number of times in uh, the Psalms to refer to someone being uh, overtaken by suffering and death, being overwhelmed. And so Jesus is saying, I have a, I have a cup and I have a baptism to receive. There's suffering and turmoil and death that lie ahead of me. Uh, are, are, you, are you able to take on what's coming for me? And because they don't get it, they say, well, sure, yeah, yeah. And what they don't realize, what they don't realize is they actually will indeed partake in Jesus' sufferings. James is going to be the first apostle to be martyred. He's beheaded by Herod in Acts. John will one day be exiled to the island of Patmos to finish out his days in solitary confinement. But here, coming up in just a few days, when they have an opportunity to stand beside Jesus and with Jesus at Jesus' trial and maybe experience some of the same sufferings of Jesus, they run. 
right? They're not ready. They're not ready for the suffering, and they're not ready yet for the glory. The most highly honored in the kingdom of God will be those who've suffered the greatest for Jesus' name. When these other disciples, they realize what James and John have asked for, they get angry. Well, why? Why are they angry? Because they want the same thing, right? They have the same selfish ambition in their hearts. They see James and John getting the positions they wanted. It's so easy, isn't it, to condemn in others what, what is also true in ourselves. And so Jesus takes the opportunity to declare his mission and his purpose as the Son of Man, and he invites his disciples into that same mission. And so here we are in verse 42, the king serving his subjects. Verse 42, and Jesus called them to him and said to him, said to them, you know that those who are considered rulers of the Gentiles lord it over them, and their great ones exercise authority over them. But it shall not be so among you. But whoever would be great among you must be your servant, and whoever be first among you must be slave of all. For even the Son of Man came not to be served, but to serve and give his life as a ransom for many. God's kingdom doesn't work like the kingdoms of this world, right? In, in this world, authority means power. And power is used for the purpose of self-exaltation and self-glory. Jesus uses two verbs there in uh, verse 42. They're, they're one verb in the original. They're three words in English. He says, lord it over. That means to control or to master someone. And then he says, exercise authority over. That means to, to strongly dominate or to wield power over someone. So the, these verbs paint a picture of someone who's suppressing someone else, holding them down, controlling them, dominating them. And this is how Jesus describes worldly authority. In contrast, then he describes greatness in his kingdom as service and sacrifices. And he used two nouns, right? You see them there in verse 43. Uh, Whoever be great must be your servant. And then verse 44, must be a slave. No one, in Je- no one in Jesus' day would have thought of servant and slave as positions of honor or authority or leadership. No one. It was a humiliation to be a slave, not an honor. Now, we should notice, by the way, that Jesus isn't denigrating the whole idea of authority. He's not anti-authority, okay? Uh, the Bible is very clear about authority structures that, that God has given to us. Uh, in, in civil society, government is an authority that God has given to us. In the church, elders are, are to lead. Husbands and fathers are to be leaders in their families, in their homes. Jesus isn't anti-authority. But those who are in authority in his kingdom are going to exercise their authority differently than those in the world. Godly authorities are going to lead in such a way they'd, they'd willingly take on pain and difficulty for, the, uh, for themselves in order to bring about blessing and prosperity for those they lead. That's what authority looks like in God's kingdom. The goal of godly authority is to be the blessing to others, not the exaltation of self, not the ease and comfort of the one who's leading. Service to others is the essential mark of Christ-like leadership. And the Messiah, the Son of Man, isn't exempt from this, right? Not Not only is he not exempt from it, he's the very model of it. He's the paradigm. He's the example. 
And this is what he says in verse 45. Let's read it again. For even the Son of Man came not to be served, but to serve and to give his life as a ransom for many. How ironic would it be if the disciples constructed in their minds a kingdom that Jesus himself got shut out of? They're they're angling for positions of power. That's how the the kingdom is in their minds. And Jesus is coming to serve and to die. He, He wouldn't even qualify in their kingdom. You ever wonder what it would like to have been a soldier uh, serving under King David? For most of his life, most of his reign, King David was the kind of king that inspired uh, devotion and loyalty and love, right? The people who served under him loved him because they saw uh, how much he loved them. David went sideways. Things fell apart for David. It didn't happen when he saw Bathsheba bathing on that rooftop. It happened several verses before that. The Bible says, in the spring of the year, when kings go out to war, David sent Joab and his army, but he himself remained in Jerusalem. Where David started to fall apart as a leader was when he started sending other people to do his bidding while he stayed in the comfortable palace. That's where it started to fall apart. And we serve, and we know, and we love, and we worship the greater David, the son of David, who would never send anyone somewhere where he himself was not willing to go and had not first gone before, right? That's the son of David, the greater David, Jesus Christ. He became a servant himself and offered himself as a, as a ransom for sinners. You see that word ransom there in verse 45? That's the redemption price paid to free a slave. And Jesus' life was the payment to free us from our slavery. And the fact that a ransom is needed just reminds us no one can reconcile themselves to God. No one can get right with God by doing something. It took someone else paying a price, paying the price, Jesus paying the price of his life in order to make us right with him. And so we're brought back to the table. Jesus here in in 1045 is speaking the words of substitution. One dies in the place of many. The innocent one dies instead of the guilty. What should have happened to the many instead happened to the one. Jesus receives death and many receive life. The glorious and powerful son of man submitted himself to death so that the poor and wicked sinners could go free. So what is the application of our text this morning? What is the application of our text? Well, of course, Jesus' teaching here affects how we treat others. Uh, Not only when we're in authority, but especially if we're in some sort of position of authority or influence or leadership. We're all prone to seek our own personal glory and position and comfort. We want other people to serve us. And the way of Christ is the opposite. He said, it shall not be so among you, right? Even when we do serve others, we often want to make sure we're noticed. We want something in return. We want to be thanked. We want to be recognized, right? Or we grow bitter. And Jesus teaches us to pursue greatness in his eyes by pursuing selfless service to others. 
But that horizontal application, how we treat others, it's only possible, and it's even only biblical when it's motivated out of our gratitude and love for Christ. You're, you're never going to be able to serve selflessly and endure and continue if you just decide you're going to work harder at it. You're not going to be able to do it in your own strength. You, you might be able to do it for a little while, but it's just not going to last. And you're eventually going to grow weary and bitter of serving others unless it's an overflow of your amazement that this is what the God of the universe has done for you, right? And we struggle to truly believe what Jesus says here because we struggle to convince ourselves that Jesus doesn't actually need our service. Think about those words again. He came not to be served but to serve. So what are you offering to him? What are you offering to him? He doesn't need it. You're the one with the needs, not him. He's the one with the supply. You're the one who receives his service. He doesn't need yours. Do you need to be cleansed of sin? He came to cleanse from sin. Do you need to be forgiven and renewed? He came to forgive and to renew. Are you afraid that you don't have anything to offer him but sin and failure? That's good. Because he didn't come to be served by you. He came to serve you by saving you from your sin and your failure. You don't have anything to offer him because he has everything to offer to you. Life and hope and peace. He offers it all. Listen to the words of Charles Spurgeon. He does not come to be served but to serve. Does not this suit you, poor sinner? You who never did serve him? who could not, as you are, minister to him, well, he did not come to get your service. He came to give you his services, not that you might first do him honor, but that he might first show you mercy. Oh, you need him so very much. And since he's not come to look for treasures, but to bestow unsearchable riches, not to find specimens of health, but instances of sickness upon which the healing art of his grace may operate, surely there is hope for you. Behold, Behold in wonder, behold in love, behold in trust. Jesus came from the right hand of God to the manger, to the cross, to the sepulcher, not to be served, but that he might serve the sons of men. Jesus is not looking for what he can get from you or get out of you. He comes as the giver, and he bids you to be the glad receiver. So believe the gospel of Jesus Christ. He came to save sinners. He came not to be served, but to serve and to give his life a ransom for many. Trust Christ. and Let him shower on you gifts that you do not deserve. And in the process, he will change you into his image. Let's pray. Our Lord Jesus, we thank you that you came to serve us by rescuing us from our sin and our condemnation. Lord, we admit that we are too much like James and John, looking for what we can get, what honor we can receive. We want the glory without the cross. We're selfish and we're proud. And in your mercy, you ransomed us by your blood. 
Lord, if there are those here this morning who've never believed on the Lord Jesus Christ, they have never placed their faith in the work of Christ on the cross, Lord, I pray that today would be the day they'd confess their sin, turn from it, and embrace the good news of the gospel that Jesus came to ransom sinners. Lord, for your church, we pray that we might so love and so adore you that our lives would more and more come to reflect your sacrificial service and how we relate to one another. Lord, I pray especially for those in positions of authority. Lord, may our, may our leadership and our authority as kingdom citizens be characterized um, by the, the kind of selfless service that we see in you. Lord, do this, we pray in Jesus' name. Amen. To find out more about our ministry, contact us at racinebible.org. Thank you for listening.